Iowa everywhere. Sage Rosenfels, Brent Bloom. Heard and, Heard and viewed exclusively across the world, only on Iowa Everywhere. Ooh, podcasters and listeners out there. This is Sage Rosenfels with the Rose and Bloom podcast on the Iowa Everywhere Network. Uh, I am Sage Rosenfels. Uh, Mr. Brent Bloom, my partner in crime, is not here today. He is out playing golf or something on, a, on this beautiful October day. Instead, instead, I have his younger brother, Chris Williams, is on the show today. Chris, welcome to the show. I don't play So you don't enjoy these like beautiful fall, I, perfect fall Midwestern days? I do. I just... I'm actually very stressed out right now. I'm watching the my Atlanta Braves are playing as we record this in the MLB playoffs. How did you that become a Braves fan in Iowa? Just because TBS. they were good. They were good during that area when you were like coming up at 10 years well, old. Well, TBS and yeah, they were good. And my mom's from the South. My mom's from South Carolina. So that was kind of like her team. And that realized baseball, it was a different era. That was like a much bigger sport back then, but you could watch yeah. every game on TBS. So, and, yeah. and yeah, so it was the Cubs on WGN out of Chicago, Braves, yeah. uh, one of those teams that sort of got a national following because of because of television and uh, the way the media was slowly, rapidly turned into where you can pretty much see every game you want at any time if you want to pay for it. And that's sort of where we are. Uh, when I was in school at Iowa State, man, a couple games a year, you might get on TV. Now it's every game you can be found uh, on a stream or on a television set or mm-hmm. something. So the world has changed. It used to be radio stations. Now it's podcasts. Uh, and on our podcast, we have uh, the Rose and Bloom podcast. And most of it is like me trying to bring on some random friends from my past, random coaches, teammates, media people, uh, about whatever the subject is of the day. This, this week is Iowa State, Texas. And I have a few Texas friends. And one of those is Ricky Williams is on the show today. Ricky Williams, here you are. Good to see you. Where, where, where uh, this is uh, Chris Williams, one of my old uh, hey, buddies, does a lot of uh, media stuff in Iowa, radio shows, and sort of an Iowa State covers the Cyclones fairly closely. Obviously, Iowa State plays down uh, in Austin this weekend. I will be down there. I'm not sure if you're going to be there, but ACL has my name on it. Uh, Iowa State football, Texas has my name on it. And uh, are you going to be down there? I know you do some broadcasting for the Longhorns. No, no, no. I used to do broadcasting. I'm too busy now. <laughs> well, somebody <laughs> needs to take it off your, your Wikipedia. Where are you uh, uh, this afternoon? I'm in Manhattan Beach, right by, the, right by LAX. Not bad. Uh, yeah. I have a son, uh, as you know, goes to Loyola Marymount. So he's yeah. about 10 minutes away. Yeah. Uh, I'm not sure if you've come across him. I know your son, Prince. Uh, which is sort of a part of our history. Uh, they, those two are still a little bit connected after all these years uh, being teammates of the Dolphins. So on this show, which is sort of random people I know, we start with, how do you know me? That's because my first we question. Played, we played together in Miami. <laughs> that's it? Well, you said, how do I know you? That's how. That's, that's true. How, that's how. But yeah, you, we, became, we were friends. Like, we were good friends. We hung out yeah. together. I think our... Our ex-wives hung out together. <laughs> true. <laughs> this is true. This is true. Well, we were sort of in the same world. You know, I, I, I go on to this. I get traded to the Dolphins team in 2002. 
And, you know, I was coming from Washington, so I'm not paying attention to what's going on in Miami. But I remember hearing about this Ricky Williams trade and, of course, played against Ricky uh, at my freshman year, maybe my sophomore year at Iowa State. We went down to Texas. Ricky had 355 touchdowns. Seems about right. And didn't play the fourth quarter. <laughs> I played a little bit in the. Uh, I mean, maybe maybe it was a, a carry or something, but it was a touchdown. And then it, <laughs> and they put in uh, like three other running backs who ended up going to the NFL. So it was it, that was quite the blowout. Uh, that was a, sort of the first time I was around you, and then I get traded to the Dolphins. And right away, there's a couple guys in my memory who were extremely nice to this random kid from from Iowa State. Uh, that joins this team. Uh, that's a really good football team. A lot of great players on on that team, actually, in 2002. And it was Zach Thomas and Ricky. <laughs> and they're sort of polar opposites in a lot of ways. Um, and but they were so friendly to me. Zach, you know, he's like a you know Texas Tech is like this, a smaller Big 12 school, like Iowa State. And so I didn't think he had that sort of like small school thing. And then Ricky was just super nice. And I think for me. What uh, attracted me to Ricky and, and chatting with Ricky is that my parents were very different than the the average family back in the, the 80s and 90s. My mom was a midwife. My parents uh, had a huge garden and chickens and organic everything. And we really like lived off the lot of ways. I knew Ricky was like sort of philosophical was the probably phrase you would say. We would sit in the back of some buses and some planes and I would ask, we just have random conversations. I'm 24 years old. And I'm just like on this Dolphins train as like the third quarterback. And Ricky was uh, really, really friendly uh, during those times. And in that first year that I got to play with you, holy shit, that was, um, you were incredible. You really were. What, do you, what are your thoughts about that 2002 season? I mean, you probably saw it from a big different angle than me. You had like, 450 touches that year. I mean, carries and, and, and catches, and uh, it was you a know, lot on your plate. You know, like the, the main thing about that year was I think that's probably the best Dolphins team in the past 20, 20 years, and we didn't make the playoffs. But I imagine that team with a, a healthy quarterback getting into the playoffs, you know, I think we had a real shot. Yeah. Yeah, we, we, we had a great team. Zach Thomas, Jason Taylor, um, we had an aging offensive line next year. That off offensive line got old fast. Uh, you had more carries, more catches. The loss of Jamie Nails, I think, probably is what. Yeah, our left guard, huge yeah. left guard. And yeah. we just sort of got old fast. And it, it, Ricky Rand had all these more, but, but ran for about 1,300 yards instead of like 1,850. So, that like with more, with more carries. You know, like in, uh, that, that season, it really like. It really broke me in a, in a yeah. lot of ways, you know, because like my mentality was after 2002, I, I knew for sure I was rushing for 2000 yards in next year, you know, but yeah. I realized the the linemen and to a certain extent, you know, ones that didn't have that, didn't have the same kind of mentality of you got to always take it to the next level. And so I think we kind of that next year, we had quarterback issues. You were there yeah, and, and and so Dave was just like, run the ball, run the ball. And I don't think the line was up to the task to be that, to be. They weren't. That was going to run the ball, even though everyone knew we were going to run the ball. 
in, in 2002, there was sort of an older, savvy offensive line that had a lot of smart guys. I mean, our center was like a, an engineering student at Notre Dame or something, Tim Ruddy. So really smart guys. Um, but they were old and, and they sort of covered guys up and Ricky just did the rest. The next year, a couple of those guys got hurt. They were one year older. Those injuries became worse and it was that they dropped like flies and didn't play as well. And that was sort of the we just would grind out wins. Right. It was it was three yards in a cloud of dust on some hard ass dry dirt on the Dolphins baseball field. And it was really it was run Ricky, run Ricky on third down, maybe run a draw to Ricky or screen to Ricky. That's what I was gonna ask. Was that the what you guys had the big comeback against the Bills? Was that the same year? No, this is this is back uh, in like a zero degree game at Buffalo. Okay. Go ahead, Ricky. Do you remember, I think it was two thousand. Well, no, actually, the, the Buffalo game that was the Monday night game, second game of the year, where I carried the ball forty times. That's, that's right. when it was three yards and a cloud of dust on that hard ass baseball field. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. You see, so you remember you remember these games. Takeo Spikes was just laying yeah. into, yeah. I mean, with that giant neck, and uh, yeah, it was. Uh, and we did. We we and and Ricky got burnout. Um, I think. Most of the, the, the guys sort of knew it at the time, but it was our best chance we sort of felt like to be successful because we were so deficient in other aspects of offensive football. We had this great, and it was like win 11 to three or seven, and Dave was like thrilled with that. But if you're the one running back, and we barely used a second or third back, it was Ricky first down, second down, third down, and pass protection. Teams loved to blitz us because we couldn't really beat them with the blitz. Uh, Ricky took a ton of punishment. And so the next year, he's like, I'm, I'm not doing this anymore. Well, I saw the writing on the wall. Like, they didn't do anything at the quarterback position. They promoted a tight end coach who'd never been an offensive coordinator to the offensive coordinator. I was like, I could see the writing on the wall. I was not going to end well. And, and, he had been, and he had been Peyton Manning's coordinator. So at the time, it's like Peyton Manning's the coordinator in the Colts. We don't, we don't need his, you know, that, what did the tight end coach do in Indianapolis back in those days? So... There was a lot. It was an ugly offseason of ugly practices and then just a really young offensive line that that uh, was was just trying to figure the way out. And so at some point that offseason, you just had to make some decisions. Yeah. You know, I think I would have been fine if like Joel Collier had, had been the offensive coordinator because, you know, he's my running backs coach. I think I could have figured it out. The other part of it was I was in a contract negotiation, you know. And I real and like in my my perspective was, especially after that year, I was like, I have to take care of myself. And if I'm gonna, if they're gonna use me like that, as long as they make me feel like appreciated, like they're taking care of me, then, you know, I can I can do it. And then they came back with like the first offer and the contract, and I just was like so like pissed off, you know. It's just like a, a lot of things building, you know. And I realized, you know, there's there's better uses of my energy and my time right now than like be, being a sacrificial lamb, <laughs> an underpaid sacrificial lamb. Yeah. <laughs> Ricky, uh, this may be hard for you to believe, but I'm this white kid in rural Iowa, and I was just enamored by you when I was a kid. I, I had your I had your Texas. I'm an Iowa State guy, okay, but I had your Texas jersey. And I remember wearing a Saints jersey to school oh, when wow. you got drafted. And I, it, I obviously I liked you as a football player, but I, I don't something. It, Sage and I have a lot in common, so this doesn't really surprise me. There was something always about you the 
I don't know, say just misunderstood the word or whatever. I, I liked the fact, Ricky, that you were always just okay being Ricky. That was kind of my, I'm, I, I'm a little different too, I think. So, right. Like, so I, I, you would just come be out there and like, Hey, this is who I am. But where did that, were you like that? Like when you were in like in middle school or where, where did that kind of just come to be? Mm, you know, I think honestly I, I was, but I like, I was more like to myself, you know, and and I, you know, like most kids in middle school, I was just trying to figure out like mm-hmm. who I am. And then I probably middle school was when I really started to like become good at football. And then, and so it's it's interesting when you're really good at something, you know, people are more open to to the, your idiosyncrasies. You know, it kind of becomes part of your character. And so I think because I had so much success, you know, like when I <laughs> when I was in high school, I was a I was the personal protector on the I was the up guy on the punt team, and so I would call out the like the play or the cadence, and the guys would always they'd make fun of my voice, you know, they'd say talk like a man, <laughs> but I was so good, you know, it was just kind of like they just would just make fun of me, and I think when I when I got to college, you know, I got a chance to start as a freshman, but. That's the thing about college, at least back then, you know, you had to earn it. And so I started as a freshman and they had, they, you know, they made fun of me and picked on me. But as I showed them that I could play, you know, I earned respect. And again, it was like teasing and fun. But then when all the upperclassmen left and I became the junior and the senior leading the nation in rushing and scoring, then, you know, people started to look at my idiosyncratic behavior more favorably. And still, I think in college, you're a kid, you know, and it was and it was like overnight when I went from college to the NFL, everything changed. And now it was like weird and different because the expectations changed. And for me, it was like, an, it was a crisis kind of, you know, because something that had always been um, charming, you know, <laughs> you know, you know. <laughs> tolerated as charming, you know, started to become something that was misunderstood. Yeah. So you use that word misunderstood and Chris used it as well. Um, do you feel like at Texas, being that it's uh, a town that has a very a, a decently wide in Austin, in Austin, Texas, a wide variety of people that were sort of the you know collegiate environment, you know, uh, the, maybe the liberal side of that town, the more progressive side of the town was more accepting than your like typical NFL fans. You get the NFL and like you're running back, you're supposed to be this way, where maybe a school or in, like in a town like Austin. It was and, and just the collegiately and you're more of a kid. People were more accepting the fact that you weren't made like the prototypical uh, running back that they had, you know, seen for decades and decades. Well, that, it's part of that. And I think, you know, Austin was a perfect setting. You know, I think I probably would have done well, you know, Berkeley. But there's a lot of college, you know, hippie college towns around the country. So, so you know. I think that's what I like. I loved about Austin, you know, aside from the rich football tradition. Um, but I think it's more of when you is more of the story around it. You know, I was the California kid coming to you know the big recruit from California with the dreads coming to to, to Austin, and so there's already like a, you know, they already knew right. Like they could see from me that this guy is different, you know. And again, it was it was charming. Um, and I, but I think something about going to the NFL, I mean, I don't know if it's the money or whatever, but things are supposed to, you know, get serious and you're supposed to get in line. And I think there's just an image of what an NFL football player is supposed to be. Do you think and, that's a part of like 
you know, media companies and, and the journalists that work for them and the websites, they, they come from Ooh. bigger cities, New York, Los Angeles that, you know, try to, they're sort of like, this is who you're supposed to be as we brand you into this league that we're going to profit from. Like, this is the type of person you're supposed to be. And, and that made you uncomfortable. Well, you know, I think cause, cause when, when I was young and I envisioned being a, a professional athlete, it, the talent was was kind of a foregone conclusion because I, you know, I, I imagine myself if I'm playing at that level, I must be pretty good. But it was more about the impact that I could make, you know. And I was inspired by by people like Jim Brown, you know, who used his platform to make himself like world famous. You know, a lot of people know who Jim Brown is. Yes, he started in football, but what he was able to do afterwards, the platform he was able to build, is that that's the image of like the athlete that I saw. It didn't stop at sports. It was like, because you got that platform and people respected you, what were you going to do with that platform? You know, that, that was, that was always really important to me. Do you think a part of the misunderstood is that people only can understand what they expect the person to be? And so when you're quote unquote misunderstood, you're just not a representation of what they assume a, a defensive end or a running back or even a quarterback, what they're supposed to be. And so that, that word just comes up as like actually a lack of understanding from the sort of the viewer standpoint rather than the actual misunderstood person themselves. Yeah. You know, I think it's that, but, but what I was saying about, about like the, the old, the old time athletes, is I think of it to a certain extent Muhammad Ali, okay, and and how the the idea was even then that like the the athletes and that they were the heroes, and so there you put all this storytelling around the heroes, right? So their idiosyncrasies become charming, right? It's because right if you don't make if someone came out and and spoke the way that Jim Brown spoke or spoke the way that Muhammad Ali spoke in the media, right? They'd be torn to pieces. Okay? But back then, like, it, it was about the hero. But I think we moved and the hero became business. And so the hero became the league. Okay? And when the hero is the league, then the players are the talent. You know, they're the, the, worker, the workers. So they have to get in line to protect the business. The shield. The shield. Exactly. Like. Exactly. Yeah. The shield. Exactly. Everything is protecting the shield and whatever the shield represents for each person that exactly. watches an NFL football game. Exactly. And that dehumanizes the athletes. You know, we're starting to see that change as athletes are starting to have more of a voice. But I, you know, Lebitard, Dan Lebitard and I, we talk about this a lot, you know, is is maybe I'm old fashioned and traditional, but I like the image of the hero and the storyteller, you know? That the hero is the one that goes out and, you know, scores all the touchdowns and does all the, the feats, right? But the the storyteller, you know, the poet, the biographer is the one that tells the story, right? Their gift is a, a gift with words and to convey the heart of a message, you know? And the athlete is the one that creates the content. And that's the relationship that Dan and I had. And I think when we can move, you know, I think of to a certain extent, Muhammad Ali, you know, right? Howard Cosell, right? You have the storyteller, the, the one that, that is the media, the medium between the, the hero and the athlete and the, and the fans. And I think when we get to the, because the thing that, that frustrates me the most is that, is that I don't think people are not inspired by athletes. It's entertainment. It's not inspirational. But the things that we go through that we have to overcome, 
yeah, it's a it's the drama of the game, but it's real life. When you get hit in the face, it's real life. You got to shake it off, see clearly, and make the next throw. You know, it's like, it's real. And I think that that can, that should be inspiring people that when they go through difficulties, oh, you know, my favorite player, right? He shook it off and got away to found a way to make it through. I can too, but it, it doesn't come across because it's. You know, I feel it turns into like we're more entertainment. I feel like you were kind of ahead of. Do you feel like you were a little bit ahead of the ahead of your time as far as this? Because you were speaking out about this stuff way before, like anxiety and cannabis and right. Like, I mean, I'm a guy who Ricky, I, I've suffered from anxiety I have my whole life. I didn't even realize it until guys like you started talking about it. Right. Do you, do you feel like you're a little bit ahead of your time in that sense? Well, I mean, if, from from some from one perspective, yes, I'm ahead of my time, but. But kind of like what we were talking about earlier, there's some people that that value that value how they feel about themselves more than they value how other people feel about them. Okay, and the thing is, when you value what other people think about you, then you have to spend all your time figuring out what other people think about you. So you don't try and and trying to appease what you want them to think about when they think about you. Yeah, but that forces you to, to ascribe to more conventional values because you're not listening to what is actually true for you. And the people that listen to what's true for them, we label them as being ahead of their time, right? Because eventually as we evolve, right, we learn that if I'm paying too much attention to what's going on out there, then like it's not, gonna, it's not sustainable. So eventually we have to learn to pay attention to, to how we feel about things. And eventually we have to learn to how we, how we feel, what we think about things, okay, to truly know what's going to work for us. So as you went on this journey, physically and mentally, throughout your NFL career, then you get done, 2012, same year I finished up. Uh, you probably chose to leave the league. I did not. I, I got kicked out. They no longer had room on the train, and I was off. Um, but uh, uh, I, I imagine you had, since you started this journey, whenever you started it, that you had um, an idea that you wanted to live authentic to yourself going forward, which has led you to into various worlds, into I, obviously what we'll get to is what you're doing now. Um, but I'm sure that's been an interesting journey because you you are com- seem to be much more comfortable with yourself maybe than 2002. Of course. You know, I think, you know, the, the, the plus side of going through difficult times is you know yourself better. You know, you have less doubt, you know, because usually when you have doubt, you have the doubt is that you can survive a difficult time. But when you go through a difficult time, you're like, ah, I got this. <laughs> uh, I can take, I can, I can deal with whatever life gives me, you know, that kind of confidence. And so, yeah, when I retired, it's funny when uh, my last game was a AFC uh, championship game and we lost to the Patriots. It was a Saturday and already that next Wednesday, you know, I, I booked to, to attend a class workshop. You know, I just love to learn. I always love to learn. And so I thought, you know, if we wait and go to the Super Bowl, I can capture the class and do it another time. But we ended up losing, and so I hit. I went to the class, and the class was it was this workshop that really, like everything I do, I'm always trying to open my mind and like see what's next. And it was like a springboard, you know, for what was next. And I just put my foot on the gas. Didn't know where I was going, but I knew if I if I followed what my interest that I'd I'd end up in an interesting place. What do, do you, you think- like to What do you like to study? What do you like to learn about? 
Um, it's, you know, Sage mentioned I'm a philosophical person. So all of my studies at the end is really trying to figure out how the world works. It's just my, like, I'm just so curious to understand everything, you know, and not the minute details, but like the big picture. I think that curiosity is what scares people. Because because as you were sort of saying, people try to appease others by doing what they assume the other person wants of them. And so that sort of leads you into a life of doing what everybody else does, which is sort of like a lack of curiosity. I'm going to buy that pair of shoes because that's what the cool kids are wearing right now, yeah. which we all have. Yeah. Sometimes, though, that's legit. Sometimes tourist destinations are great spots to go to, even though all the tourists are going there. Yeah. You know I mean, the Golden Gate Bridge is pretty sweet. So yeah. I'm going to go there. Right. Yeah. So. Um, but I think people get get uh, struggle with that curiosity and things that are maybe new that they don't understand and that they don't uh, were taught to think was wrong. Right. And, and hold on, hold on. But I was going to say one of those things we're leading into one of those things is cannabis is marijuana. Yeah. Tell me yeah. about your, tell me about your business that you're oh, doing right now. I want to get that. I want to get that in there. You've got a, a new a, a business that seems to be. I follow you on the socials. Yeah. Uh, I also know Matt, one of your business partners. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. And see that you guys are are have a company. That it's a uh, it's a company. Oh, that, by the way, that was a great segue. Yeah. <laughs> I was it, trying to work my way there. No, it's, no, it was good because it's true. Like the what got it's like that that saying curiosity killed the cat because oftentimes your curiosity is going to rub up against what you've been taught is wrong. You know, and then. And then we all have a decision to make, you know? And, and for me, my curiosity probably is the strongest voice in my head. So it's stronger than the not don't get in trouble voice. Yeah. <laughs> oh my God. So, so yeah, I can't help it. You know, I'm going to move towards my curiosity. And that's, I think another part of being ahead of my time, right? Is because there's that barrier of what you're not supposed to do. And some people who have the curiosity or whatever motivates them to go beyond that barrier. They have experiences that other people aren't having because they're not going beyond that barrier. Um, so yeah, so it is a business, obviously, because you know, in order to to for it to like keep moving, we have to generate some kind of like revenue. You know, we gotta create we gotta create money to. But but really, it's a mission. You know, and and like I think of my role, I'm the president and and one of the co-founders. Um, is really, I, I feel like I'm 45 now, like kind of over the hill, right? Meaning I'm like halfway through, if I'm lucky, you know, probably a little bit less, you know, but halfway, halfway through. And I feel like the first half of life is like an experiment. You're trying to figure out who you are. And, and hopefully by the time you get to that 45, you have a really good idea of who you are. Okay. Dolly Parton has a famous quote. She said like something like life is about figuring out who you are and then doing it on purpose. Hmm doing it on purpose. And then I feel like that's what I'm doing now, you know, that I've had a lot of experiences that given, have given me a lot of clarity and, and now I'm being myself on purpose and a big part of my journey. And I, I connected to mental health. A big part of my journey was the curiosity of, you know, I feel like I'm crazy. I'm anxious. I don't understand what's going on. You know, I'm, I'm open to anything to help me feel better, you know? And so, and so, you know, and, and I tried. And, 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 and yeah, as you say, and the teams were like, here's some pharmaceutical medications of various forms, Paxil, 
Exactly. Paxil. Yeah. Yeah. Tried Paxil for a little bit. I was curious, right, to see if it would work. And it kind of worked. And then I realized it didn't. And and I didn't even I wasn't even aware of it at the time because I wasn't connected to we were anti-cannabis because we were football players. So I wasn't connected to the conversations that were going on in the California and more alternative communities that were already talking about medicinal marijuana. You know, at the time, California already had a medicinal cannabis program, but I, I had never even like heard the term. And even if I had, people would laugh, people laughed at it back then, you know? But my actual lived experience is when I consume cannabis, like I could actually like connect to myself a little bit more and I could understand myself a little bit more. And as I understood myself a little bit more, the anxiety didn't bother me as much. I just received it as information, you know? I realize I'm just a sensitive person and I'm picking up on other people's thoughts. And most people look at me, you know, they have these crazy thoughts that aren't accurate. And so I'm just picking up on that and it doesn't feel good. It's just, and it was clear. And then, it, you know, the anxiety, it was still, I would still be aware of it, but it didn't control my life anymore. And so. So, so do you feel like cannabis just gave you like a different lens of how to not only see in the world, but most importantly, really yourself. And then that effect is how you see the world. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Because our training from the time we're little kids is to pay attention to what our parents want. You know, so our, our attention is always going like outwards, you know. And I think when I started consuming cannabis, it was a, like it was the first time that I started noticing my attention going inwards. And of course, first there was paranoia and like all the stuff that was in there that I was like, holy shit, you know, I really yeah. think like this. But but the, the courage to come to terms with those parts of myself, like help those parts of myself resolve. Yeah. And so I, for me, it's like cannabis is really a, a, it's a, it's, it's a mental health issue, meaning you can't be healthy mentally if you're not attending to what's going on inside. And one of the things, there's many things, but one of the things that can help people attend to what's inside is cannabis. And so a big, a big part of my business, my mission is getting that message out into the world. Do you feel like uh, cannabis is, and the reason it's it's stayed illegal and for most of the country for a long time, and now it's about half the states have it legalized recre uh, for recreation. Do you feel like that's been put on hold for decades and decades because of the alternate when you're going through anxiety or depression or sadness is drinking? which mm -hmm. we love supporting in America. Mm -hmm. And um, listen, and I like to have a beer. I like to have a whiskey. I like to have yeah. a glass of wine and I love having a bottle of champagne. Yeah. All right. But, uh, and the other thing would be some sort of prescription drug that was massively for profit. And we, we now looking back and we even know, aren't you many times good for the person who's using them, but for you, marijuana had much better effects than all of those things. And so it became, it looks like a little bit of your, your mission to, to sell that alternative uh, form of medicine. Yeah. And I, I mean, you, again, you're, you know me, so you're, you're nailing it. It's, you know, for me, the story manifested through cannabis. And I think I, I'm a, I have the potential to serve as a symbol because we're in a time where it's becoming legal. And so, you know, we're going to look back in 20 years and the way that we think of alcohol Right. People are going to be thinking of cannabis in a similar way is in meaning you already see it in legal states. Right. There's billboards everywhere for dispensaries. You know, um, so so I think it's going to become a part of of our culture It's going to become a part, but not a part the way it was in the past, where it was this illicit thing that got you in trouble that you had to hide. It's going to be consciously integrated into the fabric of what it means to be an American.
Yeah. I, I saw last week uh, the White House or Joe Biden, they I think they are they taking out about 6,300 cannabis or marijuana uh, in, uh, uh, prisoners that are in federal prison. And the hope is that states, because most most you know marijuana imprisonments are through state laws, not federal laws. So mm-hmm. they're laying out about six thousand federal inmates, and I think in hopes of states following suit, uh, because so many are in prison for five years or thirty years for something that big companies are making tons and tons of money off of right now. And I, you know, the alcohol, the pharmaceuticals, but also just sort of our love of putting people in prison uh, seems to be like this. It's one of the reasons, again, why this seems to be 30 or 40 years behind where it could have been and probably altered a lot of lives in this country. Yeah. You know, I, I don't think it's an accident that that the conversation around cannabis always includes some element of compassion. You know, and then as more people consume cannabis, ideas come up like, hey, there's a lot of people making a lot of money off of this. And there's a lot of people in prison. Hmm. Maybe we should do something about that. You know, like that's a beautiful that's a beautiful idea. And I think if people start to think that way in more areas of their life, you know, I think the world's going to get better. We cause I think the thing about cannabis is when you consume and you're around people and you think about things, you don't get caught up on what makes you different. You start to connect more to what we all have in common, you know. And I think the United States of America isn't that what we're all isn't that what we're all about? Is that we're all different, but we recognize we all have something in common. And if we can come together around that common cause, you know, like we can get something done. So, you know, so yeah. Do you, do, you, do you think with so many people trying marijuana now? I mean. I've been in conversations with like seven-year-old ladies, you know, eh, I took a gummy last night with my girlfriends. And it's just like, I mean, that, that conversation would have been unthinkable 10 years ago. Yeah. And that's just and the beginning. That's just the beginning. You know, do you, think, do, you, do you think that as people use occasionally, recreationally or for, or for medicine or for whatever the reason, that slowly that number will go from 10% think it should be legal to now around 60% to like, why was this ever illegal? Yeah, why, it's com- why, it's why did we ever, why would Iowa farmers not want another great crop in those great Iowa fields? Right. It's, it, it's coming up, but exactly. That, so I was thinking about that before this conversation, right? Cause there's, there's a term that I've, I've learned so much being in the cannabis industry and I'm, I've learned a lot about farming, you know, and there's a, there's a term called terroir, you know, and it really means the environment and that the environment even the processes that the farmers go through that are different in each region, right? All of these things go into the quality of the product. You know, it's like, right. When people, you know, like each state is proud of what they produce. Okay. You know, let's say that's the terroir. And, and so I think there's going to be a point where people are really proud, right. Of Iowa weed, right. There's something, <laughs> there's something, <laughs> there's something about it. That's distinctive. And people are like, yeah, you know, Rick, living in Iowa now, I can tell you it seems like we are light years away from from that actually happening here. So, how would you how would you advise um, somebody who's pro cannabis in a state like Iowa to talk to people who are not um, it, right? Because there's a level of ignorance be the word where they don't truly understand cannabis and what a guy like you is talking about, but then 
you also want to do it in a respectful way. So, because you, if you're just yelling at somebody, you're not going to do a very good job of changing their mind. How do you talk to people like that? You know, um, I, I think that this is the significance of, of, to me, of what Joe Biden did last week. You know, because it's like a lot of people, right? It's, it's, we're trained as a, as a kid to follow the rules. And so the people that are anti cannabis is not their fault. It's what they were trained, they were trained to be that way. And so, like, yeah, like you said, getting upset and it doesn't it doesn't help. You know, I, I think just being honest, just being honest. That's what I found. You know, it's just sharing your experiences if if and when people ask. And I think, you know, I talked earlier about wanting to be an athlete to have a platform. I didn't think it would be talking about drugs. Right. Because I was trained like everyone else. But the reality is this is the platform that I have and it's meaningful. You know, it's funny. It's a funny story, but I think it, it speaks to the to the point. And I think it answers your question. You know, when <laughs> when, when I was in the NFL, OK, I was, I was living with my uh, with my first wife, Christy. OK. And when I first got into the NFL's drug program, it, it's a comp, it's supposed to be a confidential program, you know, that the, the drug tester. Um, would come to my house at like six in the morning before practice, right? The alternative is if you don't care if the team knows, then it's easier because the, the drug guy is always every day at the facility. So you just see him there and you, you just pee there. But the first part, you know, I was kind of wasn't, didn't want everyone to know I was in the drug program. So just, just really Kristen knew. Okay. And, you know, she realized the consequences of if you get caught, you know, right, you're going to be in a whole lot of trouble. It's not going to be good for us. And, but even her knowing the, knowing the, the circumstances, okay, realized how much more present and kind I was when I was consuming. And so she became like, she was like, you need to keep, you need to find a way to keep doing this. I like you better this way. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. exactly. You're more oh, tolerable to live with yes, uh, yes. If, uh, if you're yes. doing it than not doing it. Exactly. So right. Your marriage, your marriage shirt almost counted on it or exactly. your, your relationship at the time. Exactly. You know? exactly. Yeah. And what I realized is my, my, my mental health being a professional football player depended on it too. You know, when I got in the drug program and I had to like stop smoking, for a little bit, I realized if I'm not smoking, I'm not going to be playing this game. Like, I can't do it. It's too That's hard. You, you felt like you needed like some sort of alternate to deal with pain, to deal with emotional exhaustion, to deal with, you know, uh, uh, keeping like depression away. I mean, football is a brutal sport and no more brutal than a running back getting 450 touches in a season. And I yeah. imagine it was like one of the few things it's like, Oh, I can finally not think about this pain. And it's not even that, you know, there's a saying that, that, that the human can, can survive anything if they can perceive the meaning of it. If they can, if it's meaningful, we can go through anything. Right. And I think for me as a philosophical person, like the, you know, if I'm being honest on the other side of it, like, you know, we sacrificed our bodies for people's entertainment. Okay. And, and for, for money for ourselves <laughs> well, and glory and fame. I mean, you, we can talk about fame chasing that, you know, everyone wants to be Michael Jordan and we want to be but, famous. And have a billion but even still, it's famous, but it's still the fame is coming through entertaining people. Yeah. Right. You, there's like there's other people that are famous and they didn't have to put their bodies on the line. You know, <laughs> they, and it wasn't in inter- right. Even actors, right? 
but anyways, yeah. So, well, do, do you think that people love sports and, and football and, and but really sports in general? You know, sort of a sports based show. I was a five sport athlete in high school. You played minor league baseball. You played a lot of sports. That sports are one of the few things that's like not contrived out there. Like you give it your all, and maybe you're the best, or maybe you're not, or maybe you win, maybe you lose. But at least it's real. Yeah, hundred percent acting or i mean my daughter's in dance everything is a hundred percent contrived they're told exactly what to do in the millisecond right and but sports is this sort of free-flowing emotional game of trying to win that is pure that we we don't see much sort of in almost human society at this point but and i think this is this really gets to the heart of the issue is that is that i think sports is the ultimate reality tv ultimate you know and i think it, it, there's a release for people you know, watching like real life battles go on, you know? And I think the reason people need that release is because they spend so much time, Instagram, you know, um, Netflix, HBO, in fantasy land, you know? And I feel like it's it's reversed. If people like stop trying to live like the their favorite sitcom or their favorite star on Instagram, which is not real, and live their life more like the, of what they see in the sports world, Oh, then I think sports would really, really, and I think we would we would look to athletes as as people who inspire us, and I think that would like, actually like put pressure on the athletes to be worthy of that kind of. So sometimes I give a you know if a booster club or a Rotary club asked me to give a speech, I give this speech on four lessons learned as an NFL journeyman quarterback. And it's a Saban story about your seat on the bus and like, know your role, which is great. Like in, in companies or a family, knowing your role within your family or with, <sighs> with as a parent or as a son, you have like this role that you can make uniquely yours. Right. So there's like a Saban story. There's a, there was a fire story. Uh, there's a say story. Um, and um, there's an Eli's story. There's a fifth Ricky story, which was about expectations. And it was when he came back uh, after being gone, after being in India, uh, in Grass Valley, California, during his year off, he comes back. Nick Saban is our head coach. Nick Saban is our head coach. And they come back and Ricky's got this beard and his beard, beard looks beautiful right now compared to what this thing looked like. I mean, there might have been some garbage in there still. It was it was special. But they asked him, hey, Ricky, what are your expectations this year? You know, we had drafted Ronnie Brown with the second pick. Rick, Ricky sort of comes back out of nowhere. And, and you know, are you expecting to run for 1,500 yards, 1,000? You know, what's your expectation? He hadn't played football and done anything in, in a year or whatever. And he goes, I don't believe in expectations. <laughs> expectations sort of get you off track of just doing your best every day. That's all you can really do is your best every day. And you start having these expectations of 1500 yards and halfway through the season, I'm at 300 because I got a busted up ankle and half offensive lines out. Now that, that expectation talk just will wear me down. Mm. And I was like, huh, that is actually a great way of looking at things. We all have goals and we all have like what we are trying to get to. But if you could just sort of make your goal every day, I wake up and I do sort of the best at what I'm, whatever I'm trying to do. And some of that is self-care or reading a book, but the sort of daily goal of living life rather than like in a year, I need to have a car and I need to have a huge house. I need to have the beautiful wife with the 2.2 kids. And I need to have a job that makes me look good with a nice car. <laughs> and then as you're going towards that, whether you reach that or not, like imagine the constant struggle that sort of conflict you can put that in of like man i'm not meeting my expectation i want to be a millionaire by 30 and i'm 
just a school teacher making $40,000 a year. And, and I'm not going to meet that. I, what I, I was hoping or, or whatever it might be, or I'm a, I'm a business person that's not doing great. And, and then you just like depressed and go to the bottle. Yeah. Exactly. You know? And the worst part is even with, with expectations, even when you do hit them, right. It's like, then what, you know, because you get the beautiful wife and the two and the two and a half kids and the kids don't listen to you and the wife starts to get old and you're like, what the hell? <laughs> <laughs> What was all this for? <laughs> but, but, that, but that's the formula that we all a little bit are taught that is the best way to go through life. And it might, in some ways, it might be the easiest way to go through life is to like you know, find this partner and you do know this that, thing. And, and I know for a fact that I uh, have a girlfriend that I like makes me a better person, yeah. like makes me more thoughtful, uh, says things to me to make me think about things in different ways. I'm like, man, it's been, it's so nice to have somebody who is either challenging me or just offering me some advice because I don't have a, a, a mirror to go, hmm, how did I deal with my uh, cranky 15-year-old daughter? Did I do that the right way when I raised my voice or when I like, you know, there's always a better way probably of, of having a, a advice to land softer yeah. and having somebody, uh, a partner, uh, partnerships are, are great. Yeah. And uh, but the expectation is wife. 2.2 kids yeah. house with the white picket fence. Yeah, and, yeah we and, both did it, right? And we were like, hey, wait a minute, you know? <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God. Life's great, right? Life, life's great. But, yeah, I'm, I'm glad that's the story because that's really how I live my life, you know? And I think the truth is it's how everyone lives their life, okay? Because we all wake up in the, in the morning and we all do our best. The sad part is we don't when we don't give ourselves credit and appreciate that because we're so focused on not meeting our expectations. Yeah. Yeah. An interesting piece of advice from Rick Williams back in the day. I always <laughs> love talking to this guy. Always what really one really one of my favorites. Ricky, um, why I, did you, he, he, well, Sage said that you kind of took uh, you were good to him from day one. What did you like about Sage back in those days? Honestly, like when when you were saying that earlier, it's, it's the Big 12 connection. Uh you know, it's it's weird. Like I didn't even really think about it, but going back, that's what it was. I remember I I, I was drafted by um, by the Saints, um, and when I got to the to the Saints, um, we had a we had a running back there from Iowa State, Troy Davis. Troy Davis, yeah, Bulldog. And and <laughs> I'm telling you that I was the best football player I've ever been around in my whole entire life. From he could do everything. I mean, he was a little guy. Well, he was shorter, but he would knock linebackers out when they came to – like, knock them out when they came to blitz. He could Break catch, jaws. He could Break run. jaws. Man, this dude was the best football player I've ever been around. You know, and so – and, again, I think the reason I, I connected to Troy, we're in the same running back room, but in the Big 12 connection. And I think I met Sage, and he was just cool. He was just open. We could have philosophical conversations. You know, when all I ever wanted in life – was really just to like have conversations like this with people. But when you're famous, people don't look at you that way. And so they're not open to having those kinds of conversations. I think with Sage, he was open to it. So I was like, all right, we can talk. Well, but real quick, let's, let's promote Heisman yeah. a little bit. All right. Heisman, H I G H S M A N yeah. um, is your cannabis company. It's a lifestyle. It's a lifestyle. It's a lifestyle. It's, it's funny. What's that mean? Can I, can I get a hat a, or a T-shirt then? Is there a sweatshirt? Exactly. It's a, <laughs> but right. it's, 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 there's that. But the, the real idea of a lifestyle brand is like I was saying, there's never been uh, out in the open 
cannabis lifestyle ever. And so it's it's like it's it's never been there before. And so I'm trying to take the lead and and starting to create that. And where my background is coming from athletics and the attitude, you know, this attitude in sports is what can we do today to make ourselves better? What can we do today to help make us perform better on Sunday? And that's the mentality that even when I was playing football, consuming, that was the mentality that I used. And so the same mentality that helped me be successful in football has helped me be successful in a lot of other areas. And so I'm trying to combine those two things with Heisman. Is like the attitude, bringing that football attitude of no excuses, like always working to get better with the inner reflection of connecting to like what's really true for me and getting to know yourself that cannabis brings. And our tagline is spark greatness, because for me, true greatness, it means you meet the demands of in here and you meet the demands of the world. Tell, you, me, about, tell me about a couple of your products really quick. Right. You I mean, you probably have multiple types, multiple <laughs> types of weed. What, what you know, well, give us give us some details of weeds in general, like you have up your ones that sort of get you up. You have ones that sort of get you down. You got the hybrids like give give the give the listeners okay. a, a little info. All right. So back back to just to reiterate, we're a lifestyle brand. And so we're, we're not cultivators. And so the, the way that cannabis regulations are now is that as we move into each market in each state, you know, we have to find cultivators that have licenses in that state to to cultivate, to grow our product. Okay? Um, because I know a lot about the plant. It's a partnership. As I can say, this is what I want you to grow and this is how I want you to dry it. This is how I want you to cure it because this is what I like, okay? And so it's this partnership of working together. Um, but, but really as a brand, we're that medium between the flower and the consumer. And so a lot of it, like I've been doing in this conversation, storytelling, right, is, is creating ease because this is something that has a checkered past and if people before they can be open to this in their mind they have to have some permission and i I found with a lot of people famous football player who says things that are interesting that i kind of like okay he does it all the time and he seems okay maybe i'll be more open to trying it okay that's the the first part and the next part is is how we talk about it so in in all the markets we're in right now the way we the way we present our product is for the the type of uh, cannabis profile that's more t- tends to be more up and more in the mind and focus. We call pregame, okay? The one that tends to activate more of a of a heavier body sensation, great for sleep, relaxation, yoga. Okay, we call this a postgame, right? Because right, the idea of that mentality of sometimes you got to get up for something and sometimes you got to recover, right? And then what people tend to call hybrids, that kind of in the mid, okay, we call halftime. Yeah, halftime. Um, and, and I think that the other convention, and again, part of it is is be making cannabis more inviting to integrate into people's lifestyles, okay, is our naming conventions, you know? So we get genetics and, you know, like, and we, we put a sports twist to them, you know? So um, there's, a, there's a common cannabis cultivar called Gushmints, which has a very, like, you taste like mint and smells like mint. And we did a cross, uh, in Massachusetts, and we call Edelmints. <laughs> it's funny. I get it. Yeah. So you know, and, and we you know we have a cross. We call GMO is a is a is a, a cultivar that's that's very popular. It's like a garlicky funk kind of kind of uh, garlic mushroom and onions is what GMO stands for. And we have a, a strain in California called GMO Montana. 
So we're <laughs> wait. Are, are, where, where, do these names come up like on the flight to Massachusetts? It's like you know we're going to come up with a name. No, it's actually thing. it's it's part of our whole process. You know, we work with the cultivators, and we we you know in the 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 lore of cannabis, each of the genetics cultivars strains um, they have a lineage. You know, they have parents. Right? This is like this is. We're farmers, you know, they have well, We understand that Iowa is a bunch, you know, it's it's corn and soybeans and all the things. It's the same Iowa thing. Comes, so we understand just, that. Right. Yeah. There's different kinds, right? Different. And then you cross them and you get different varieties, you know? And so we're taking the crosses and we're trying to honor the parentage, which connects to the cannabis community. But we're also trying to honor, like, inspiring sports figures, you know, creating that connection. Because so much about, about psychedelics, you know, things that alter our consciousness, so much is about set and setting. And so much is the mindset. And when people are consuming cannabis with the history of the, all the negative stuff, it messes up. It, it affects the experience. But when people are, have positive connections, things that are inspiring and uplifting, that also affects the experience in a more positive way. Ricky, before we uh, wrap you up, wrap it up here. The cyclones, our cyclones, are taking on the Longhorns this weekend. I just was curious if you had any opinions on like the current state of college football. Texas is going to the SEC. You, you and Sage are both Big Twelve guys. Are, are you are you happy with the direction things are going? Clearly, some athletes are making money. You would have been a guy who would have made a lot of money as a millions. You would have made millions. Oh, you would have been one of the great NIL players of all time, I would think, Ricky. Do you have? Do you think about this stuff much? I mean, I, th- I think about it big picture, and I kind of laugh. I laugh at the like the the side effects of getting older, you know, <laughs> is that the, the nature of life is always evolving and changing. And, you know, the older you get, right, there's more things behind you that are evolving and changing. Um, but, but also, uh, you know, for me to make peace with it, I, I like take pride in that. I was a part of it, you know? Right? Yeah. And, and that I'm glad that it's a legacy, right. But that college football players are, are able to do, to do things that we couldn't do. You know, the same thing we think when we think about our kids. Right. We take pride in giving our kids opportunities that we didn't have. You know, and if we're healthy, you know, we're not jealous of our kids because <laughs> they don't have to wear hand-me-downs, you know. <laughs> yeah. how, how does it feel, by the way, uh, as, as we wrap this thing up? How, how does it feel um, as Iowa State goes down to Austin? Uh, a lot of players have gone through the University of Texas. How does it feel to have the field that this game oh. played on Saturday when that when they told you of that we're going to name it it's name it's Ricky Williams it's Campbell Williams field Campbell Williams field awesome. yeah um, how, how did how did that make you feel after this this journey throughout the NFL and all the ups and downs of that mm-hmm. and 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 uh and then to go back to your college and to have somebody not hold any maybe negative thoughts that maybe national you know, uh, uh, the National Football League may have had or some, yeah. some sort of media, you know, there, there was no judgment to there. They're, they loved you mm-hmm. and they willing to name the field after you and, and, and Campbell. Uh, how did oh that make God. you feel at that time? You know, it's, it's, it's the most beautiful. It's like, you know, I feel like if, a, if I, you know, heaven forbid, but if I was crossing the street and a bus hit me, I feel like I'm good. I feel like I'm good. And I think it has a lot to do with the statue at the University of Texas and my name on the field. Because, and it also is, is why I named this company Heisman, right? Because the truth is in 2000, I mean, in 1990, 
eight when I won the Heisman Trophy, if I would have come out and said, I consume cannabis, right? They would have just taken me off immediately. There would have been no possible way I could do that. Because the thinking is, in order for me to get the rewards and all the things that I'm looking for, I have to hide the parts of myself that people don't accept, right? And we all do it, all of us, right? But I don't think it's good for us. Definitely wasn't good for me. And the fact that I can go through everything I went through that I still I launched this company and still I have a statue in my name. It's proof. Awesome. Right? It's proof. No one can say right. <laughs> no one can can say that anymore. Right. Well, as they you said, the, the, the world is changing and it's very different than when you and I were sweating like crazy in that Miami humidity and that Miami heat and real two days before real, the bubble. Listen, Dave, I, I, at the end of my career, I played with some different running backs. We didn't touch them in practice. Ricky was still getting beat on in those. It was, it was a different world of football back then. It was so physical, true two days for like 17 straight days. And, uh, the world has changed a lot in a lot of ways, college football, pro football. Um, I sincerely appreciate you coming on. Uh, this will go to, I don't know, ten or fifteen thousand. Uh, uh, a lot of Iowa, a lot of Iowans, and a lot of Iowa staters uh, listen to the show. And I bet I sincerely... we pique some curiosity, Ricky, with the cannabis stuff. Uh, yeah, sorry, we you, will. You did a good deed here. Yeah. But there'll be a lot of people who will be I uh, think so. very curious. And I, I and a, I have a ahead. nickname. I have a nickname for Iowa State. What's that? I mean, it's it's a common nickname, but I, I truly think Iowa State is running back university. Really? You know, I think Iowa State and Wisconsin, you know, like I, I've always like, you know, every year, every year, Iowa State always, always has a back that I love to run. I love to watch run. Yeah, we've had some. Good I don't know. Guys. I don't know what. I don't know how, like how or what well, it is. David Montgomery. Uh, uh, you know what it is? It's sixty mile an hour winds coming from the north in November, and so it's like <laughs> let's run. We need a good running back, and so yeah. I, I think they know in Ames, Iowa, it's different than Waco, Texas, or some of these other really good weathered schools. You know. Yeah. So. Uh, well, if you're ever in Iowa, let us know, Ricky, and we'll uh, we'll treat you. All right. Yeah. Well, have a good time. yeah. As the rules change. And I want to say one last thing. I want to say thank you. I want to say thank you for, you know, as a 24 year old kid getting traded to Miami, Florida. Uh, you treated me with it with a ton of respect. And I didn't know anybody. And for for superstars uh, of teams to, you know, have conversations with a third string quarterback in the back of a bus after a long trip back from New England, another loss to the Patriots. Uh, man, we had some good talks and uh, it made me be a little more introspective. And I think that that has paid me big dividends uh, in my life. And I sincerely appreciate it. Wow, oh, this was great. Thank you, guys. Yeah. Thanks for coming on. We, we appreciate Thanks, it. Nice yeah. to meet you, sir. Appreciate it. Yeah, you too. All right, Sage. Well, that was awesome. Thanks for lining that up, man. That was really, really cool. I wish we could have done three hours with, with Ricky. But I, I, I'm glad that worked out. I'm glad I'd, I got, got a lot of questions in that I've always wanted to ask him. And uh, he really did treat me great. And awesome. um, it was really great that he could spend One some time. One thing I love to, about to you on. is like every time I hang out with you, I like you. you'll just sit there. It doesn't matter if it's Ricky Williams or if it's my dad down in Clorinda, Iowa at a cornfield like you just sit there and talk with people like great i love that about you 
We get, it, very cool. Uh, I love what you're doing here, bringing on the different guests and stuff too. It's, it's great. It's awesome. it's uh, it's not really a talent. As Ricky said, it's learned behavior. My dad would go into a fairway grocery store when I was about eight years old, and he'd say, "In the back in the days, you just like leave your kids in the car, and he'd go inside." And my mom would tell him to get a you know a gallon of milk and a and a loaf of bread. And 45 minutes later, my dad comes strolling out after talking to half the store. So uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, we we, we we're one. not in a hurry. We like talking to people. We, I, I I've always felt curiosity is one of my best strengths. I think it was good for me in football to be curious, to learn new things and learn offenses and, and those things. It got to meet a lot of interesting people and Ricky, one of the most interesting of them all. So great, great episode. Good, good stuff. Uh, we're going to, we got to get out of the studio here because the boys are going to come on and do the hook with Mike Palm and Ken Miller. And thanks for letting me uh, fill in for bloom. Do it that was great. Time. Anytime right. uh, for Sage Rosenfels. I'm Chris Williams signing off here on Iowa everywhere. Iowa everywhere.